Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel of New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I am pleased and honored to have with us Professor Jeremy Black. Professor Black is Professor Emeritus of History at the University of Exeter. He is without doubt the most prolific historian writing in the Anglophone world today, having written well over 150 books. And today we're dealing with one of his newest books, France, A Short History, published by Thames and Hudson. Welcome, Professor Black. Hello. Professor, uh, what may um, ask are the or um, is the origins of France? You mean the book or the country? Uh, the country. Oh, the country. Um, well, I mean, it was unified, first brought under one rule by the Romans, but obviously as only part of the Roman Empire. After the Romans left, there were um, a number of successor um, governments, regimes, if you want to use that term. Some of them derived from the invaders, if you wish to use the term barbarians, of which the most important were the Franks, but others included the Burgundians, for example. The Visigoths, who was based in Spain, were also ruling um, a, a section of southern France. And on top of that, uh, there were um, a, a degree of, as it were, continuity from the Gallo-Roman period. Uh, in essence, France was unified around the Franks, or, or shall we say, around the uh, successive Frankish dynasties, first the Merovingians and then the Carolingians. Uh, but that's not obviously the same as the modern boundaries of France, which only emerged through history and, in fact, weren't finally settled until the end of World War II. How important, then, uh, would you say was the period of Roman rule uh for French history? I think the period of Roman rule was very significant. I mean, for the benefit of listeners, um, France was conquered essentially by Julius Caesar. Um, so we're looking at the first century uh, before Christ. Uh, it remains under Roman rule until the early fifth century. Um, so you've got a long period of time. During that period of time, you've got uh, the development of a town structure with significant towns with the basis of modern towns, including Paris and Lyon. You've got the linked development of a road structure. You've got Christianization, principally in the fourth century. Um, you've got a pattern of uh, Romanization, which is more sustained than you see in England and rather on the pattern of what you saw in Spain. Would you say then that the fall of the Roman Empire represent a case in the instance of France of continuity or discontinuity? Oh, I think the fall of the Roman Empire is definite discontinuity because um, the, uh, the um, territorial area is divided among a number of powers. Um, the, as it were, the economic interests that have been linked to long-distance trade are harmed um, there is a marked fall in urban life. Um, I would say very much a discontinuity. Why did the Franks become successors to the Romans in Gaul, a.k.a. France? Um, the Franks uh, were successors as in ra rather due to a process of conflict. I think that's important. And also because although they had a tendency to divide among the lines of their leading uh, families. Nevertheless, there was also periodic processes of consolidation within the Frankish elite. 
Uh, but in essence, it was not inevitable uh, that the Franks, for example, would have been uh, dominant in areas outside their heartland. Their heartland, if you like, is modern area of Belgium, northeast France, which is considerable distant, distance from, for example, areas like Aquitaine, Languedoc, Burgundy, all of which had um, independent uh, non-Frankish uh, um, uh, ruling groups, um, let alone areas where they're like uh, Brittany, which didn't, as it were, come under the authority of, of the French state till really the, the end of the 15th century. Do we have any idea, based on the existing uh, database of evidence, when the Frankish ruling house and its aristocracy, if you want to employ that particular term, became culturally Latin, for lack of better expression? Oh, I think that's a very good question. I mean, I would say that's a continuity process in that um, uh, uh, Latinuity, Latinity, sorry, I'm tired, Latinity um, does not represent what simply one step. Um, so that if you like, for example, uh, rulers might or leading aristocrats might choose to go uh, to religious rites being presided over by Catholic clergy, uh, but that does not necessarily mean that in their social organization or social life, um, they are necessarily behaving like somebody might have behaved if they'd been popping out of their villa in the 3rd century AD. So I think one's really looking at a process of continuity. As you are aware, Charlemagne was very concerned at the notion of a rebirth, a revival of... Uh, as it were, the Latin Empire in the West. Um, and I think it's fair to say he also was very interested in a, um, a more ostentatiously educated um, ruling house and elite. Um, so I would say if you're looking at that, you're looking at the very end of the 8th, beginning of the 9th century. But clearly prior to that, you've got education and you've got education by the clergy earlier it's just i think the, the 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 contrast between shall we say leaders of frankish groups invading or moving into the roman empire in the 4th and early 5th century and frankish war groups operating in the let's say 6th or 7th century whether they're ostentatiously christian or not is rather hypothetical why, uh, or what, I should say, explains the relative weakness of France at the beginning of the Hundred Years' War and its recovery at the end? Well, that's very, a very good question. For the benefit of listeners, we've moved up to the early 14th century, and we're in a situation in which the crown of France uh, really doesn't control much more than an area of what we would call north-central France, particularly around Paris down to the Loire Valley, and that in large parts of France there are aristocratic families, um, uh, dynastically dominant, um, who uh, might consider themselves uh, vassals of the King of France, but only if the King of France tells them what they want to do. Um, I think you've got here the, uh, both the particular problems posed by feudalism as a governmental system and the specific uh, contingencies of what had happened in France uh, from the 9th century onwards, and in particular um, the collapse of Carolingian 
strength and cohesion, uh, the impact of um, a second lot of what one might call barbarian attacks, particularly Vikings, and of course that leads to Normandy. Um, and um, I think it's fair to say that by the late 10th century, um, French monarchy is very weak, and that in, in some respects it's actually already got stronger uh, by the early 14th century, but nevertheless, um, nowhere near as strong as it's to be by the end of the Hundred Years' War. And yet, oddly enough, uh, for about 140 years, almost up to the beginning of the Hundred Years' War uh, in 1337, France had been ruled by a unusually good number of, um, I wouldn't say excellent, but certainly very capable kings. Uh, isn't it a paradox that for such a long period of capable uh, rules by monarchs has the end result in a space of 10 years to uh, this weakened position by uh, the time of Cresset? Well, it's a very good question. I mean, several points to bear in mind. I mean, one is that the Capetian dynasty, uh, like the Carolingians before them, and like the uh, Valois in the 1580s, runs out. And I mean, the major that most significant factor that you have to do if you are a monarch in a hereditary system is make sure that you can guarantee enough clear male heirs to keep the system on the road. The, as you will know, uh, the Capetians um, um, were not able to do that. You're absolutely right. There were some very talented people, Philip Gustus, Philip IV, very talented um, uh, rulers. There were others who I think it's fair to say were not so talented. I mean, you know, St. Louis becomes very important um, uh, in the uh, St. Louis IX in the subsequent reputation and particularly as a Catholic um, uh, pot um, sort of dynasty. But it's fair to say that his invasion of Egypt was a disaster. The vast ransom that had to be paid um, was, was, you know, it was a real serious problem. And then, of course, he dies on a second rerun, though this time at Tunis. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't universally the case. And they'd also missed some own goals. Um, so, sorry, they'd missed some open goals. In other words, the French had exploited very well King John's uh, weakness, unpopularity, and as a result of that, Philip Augustus had been able to overrun uh, Normandy. Uh, but I think it's fair to say that their subsequent attempt um, to put uh, his son on the English throne is a serious failure. Um, and I would, I would argue that, you know, yes, they're doing better, as I tried to indicate. They're doing better than the rulers of the 11th century. Um, but I think that there are significant problems for the French monarchy. And um, in a sense, running out of talented male rulers uh, helps to expose those. Would it be true to say that, structurally speaking, the size of France, um, you know, relatively large vis-a-vis, -vis, say, England, um, had the end result of when there was a weak king of civil disturbances and or even civil war occurring? One apparently inevitably yeah. leads to the other. Yes, I agree with you. I mean, I'd argued that in the book, that the geographical factor is significant. And I tried to argue that also in the histories that I've done already appearing on both Italy and Spain. Um, I think there are practical problems, particularly functional problems, about the extent to which you can 
extrapolate power. Um, I mean, obviously, Paris, like London, is eccentric to the centre of that country. That's less serious in the case of London because it's a smaller country. It's readily possible for the monarchs to campaign into the north, campaign for that matter into Wales or into Scotland, which are neighbouring territories. Um, And also the bulk of the economic wealth, uh, both and agricultural, was in the southeast of England. Uh, I think France, where you've got enormous distances to get down to Languedoc, Gascony, uh, Provence, is a much harder situation. And also some of those areas are, in many senses, uh, wealthier than the Ile de France in in the period we're talking about. So, yes, I would agree with you entirely. And then obviously what you often do is you leave a lot of power either – to local ruling houses and or you put in cadet or collateral branches of your own uh, ruling house and then you hit problems because they don't always go in the direction you want them to go in. Uh, Do you agree with uh, those uh, historians of the more recent period who tend to downplay the effectiveness of the centralization efforts of uh, Cardinals Richelieu and Mazarin? in the 17th century? Yes. Um, What we're talking about here is the conventional, rather dated view, even when I was uh, at uh, school and university, which is many decades ago, uh, with France as a sort of absolutist monarchy, which, of course, was an absurdity. I mean, many good scholars, the American scholar William Bike, I would uh, identify, particularly the British scholar David Parrott, have pointed out the deficiencies in these. Um, I mean, sort of obvious things like everybody played up the intendances, the intendants, the officials sent into the um, provinces to represent the royal will in the 17th century, but there were, I think, about 33 of them. They had an average start of a staff of about 12, and how these people, in the absence of information or strength or power, were supposed to run roughly 20 million Frenchmen, is un- French people, is unclear. And Bike, in his rather a superb study of Languedoc showed that Antenton were only effective when they got on with the local uh, local potentates when they clerical and lay, and when they didn't, they were very ineffective. So yes, I would agree with you entirely. And it's interesting here because what one's talking in part is deep history, but in a sense you could argue that many of these problems go on into the 19th century and that they are part and parcel of issues of governance and politics in the 19th century. And you can also talk about a characteristic of French history, characteristic of many other countries, um, which is the discrepancy between the image of power coming from the centre, as you see at the present moment, President Macron, and the reality that in many of the uh, paper formed, uh, people don't give a damn about the instructions that are coming out of Paris. So I think that that is a factor that um, is very significant, whatever is the formal nature of authority. And you can see that in uh, authorities that were tougher, if you like, than the 17th century state in the sense that they had more power or they were more willing to inflict uh, harsh penalties. You can think of, for example, the growing ineffectiveness of Napoleon in, in enforcing conscription. Think of the problems that affected um, the agencies of the Third Reich when faced with French resistance. Um, you know, I mean, the, all of those were, in a way, uh, different representations of the problems and limitations of government in an area as large as France. 
So it would be true to say that the ap so-called absolutism of Louis the Fourteenth is, in retrospect, a myth. Yes, I think it's a deeply flawed interpretation. I discussed that at such great length in my Europe in the 18th century and also in my book on Europe from 1550 to 1800. Um, the, what I would say is it misunderstands the and puts a later gloss on how contemporaries saw the nature of governance operating and that governance essentially rests on a notion of cooperation within a context which is Christian and legal. So in other words, there was, and Louis XIV, if you'd been interviewing him now, uh, would have explained to you that he was not a tyrant, he was not a despot, he was a Christian monarch, and that there was a big difference between him and what were held to be the arbitrary powers of non-Christian monarchs, such as, for example, the uh, Ottoman Sultan of the period, or emperors of antiquity who had persecuted the church. Um, so unparalleled power was not what they were seeking or how they presented their their strength and then many one of the great problems is uh, is how it was seen and how it was presented subsequently from the 18th century to the present day so would you agree with bike's um, uh, statement that quote absolutism is the highest stage of feudalism unquote um, I would say that that represents, a, in a sense, a reification. It's treating feudalism as if it is one state of affairs and absolutism as if it is one state of affairs. But I agree with the notion of continuity, and I've argued in many of my works on European history that the great century of change in European history, the great period of change, is not till the 19th century, and that the, the notion of the early modern period, as, as it were, significantly different to the medieval one, is, is flawed. Was Louis XIV a threat to the European balance of power, as that term was understood in the 17, late 17th, early 18th century? Well, he wouldn't have seen himself in that role. I mean, I think it's fair to say that the major problem posed, and, you know, again, I've written on the balance of power, the balance of power is as much a doctrine for rhetoric as it is a system of analysis. What I would say is that Louis XIV himself, particularly in the late 1670s, early 1680s, but already earlier in the 1660s, early 1670s, as somebody that didn't wish to be bound by notions of existing treaties or by bilateralism, or for that matter, multilateralism. Um, and therefore, he was a force for instability. Now, that wasn't quite the thing as saying that he was a threat to the whole of Europe. I don't think he was any particular threat to the you know, the rulers of Russia or uh, Tsar Alexis for much of his reign or the Ottomans. But he was a particular problem in Western Europe, yes, and he had the ability to project power into Central Europe and the Mediterranean, yes. How misgoverned would you say was 18th century France? Well, it depends what one means by misgoverned. I mean, and it depends who you're comparing it with. I mean, you know, there is the, the argument, um, there's a famous book called The Well-Ordered Police State, which was an analysis of Germany and Russia in the 
essentially the 18th century, and argued that Russia was in fact politically and governmentally weaker because it didn't have intermediate institutions. Now, from that context, you might actually argue that a state that has intermediate institutions which circumscribe its central power, and of course the same thing was even more true of 18th century Britain, is in some respects stronger as a political community but obviously can face major problems if it's engaged in great power uh, confrontation and conflict, as indeed happened with France in the 1780s and leads to the desire and determination for political change and governmental change because they can't anymore finance their great power confrontation with Britain. Um, So it really depends, I mean, what you're assuming from government. I mean, you wouldn't have assumed in the 18th century that central government would provide you with the education or health facilities or social welfare that many people expect from government today. And people in the 18th century would have thought that was naive and foolish. Would you say then that the French Revolution was inevitable or merely a matter of uh, contingency? It was definitely not inevitable, either in it uh, either as an event or as the as it developed or indeed in the uh, the timing of it and um, I think it's fair to say that a lot of people at the time were quite surprised about how things uh, worked out nor was it inevitable how it would end up though you already get one or two commentators suggesting um, that there may well end up being a general that will seize power. Uh, but that was by no means inevitable either. So the French Revolution isn't inevitable, Napoleon isn't inevitable. What explains the radicalism of the French Revolution? Well, I don't think it is radical initially. I mean, initially, um, uh, most of what's being demanded in 1789 would have caused no surprise on the other side of the Channel, and even less on the other side of the Atlantic at that period. But obviously, by the time you're through to 1793, 94, and you're talking about uh, you know a new uh, an atheistical state that's got rid of monarchy and aristocracy and changed the calendar, then it's something completely different. I mean, I think it's one of the classic things: revolutions, in other words, violent breakdowns or overthrows of power create, if you're not very lucky, a inherent process of radicalization in which extremists come to the fore. Um, that's not the same thing as saying that the people who initially wanted to change things, uh, as it were, were aiming to put Maximilian Robespierre in power. Why did Napoleon manage to obtain supreme rule? Um, he was a clever opportunist um, who benefited from a degree of exhaustion on the part of the government, the directory government, which was also under a lot of pressure in the war of the Second Coalition. But it was a close-run thing, um, and his ability and willingness to use coercion to achieve his goals was quite important. There was no, as you know, there was no particular mandate for uh, for his gaining power. Um, but, I mean, he's successful both in using force and then, in, indeed, in getting rid of rivals within the military. Do you agree with Tocqueville that there was more continuity rather than discontinuity in French history before and after 1789? I think there was definitely continuity, yes. I think you've still got France in 1830 as in 1730 
as a landed society of relatively low efficiency agriculture um, with a, um, as it were, inherited status more important generally than what the individual can achieve um, and with people often having a very strong sense of locality I think that's really important uh, that had obviously changed during the wars because so many people had traveled elsewhere largely to fight um, but essentially France reverts to being really quite a localist uh, country and I think that remains the case. I think then there are significant changes thereafter, not least the development, as I've argued in the book, of uh, railways, then a railway system, industrialization, um, and then the new kind of political language and practices of the Third Republic. What explains the quick downfalls of the three monarchies in the 19th century? Was it contingency or structural in nature? I should say, was it contingent or structural in nature? Well, it wasn't, con I mean, it, it wasn't structural. I mean, we're talking here for the benefit of listeners. In fact, there's more than three. I mean, there's Napoleon the first in 1814. I was thinking about that, but in the case of Napoleon, you could argue that it, it commenced in the spring of 1814 and finalized in the late June of 1815. So in that case, it was okay. not quick. Okay, so there's Napoleon I, there's then 1830, 1848, and 1870. Um, the ones on either extreme are quite clearly militarily linked, Napoleon's one and three. Uh, the other two are essentially uh, factors within French politics, and you could argue it different ways. You could argue that if Louis-Philippe had been willing to use troops, he might have been more successful. After all, uh, Napoleon III comes to power essentially through force. Um, Louis-Philippe could, could have used that force, could have uh, had access to it, but of course he's a different personality. Um, as far as Charles X is concerned, um, you know, many of the really good units of his army are away fighting in Algiers. Not a good idea um, if you're about to hit large-scale trouble in Paris. But no, I don't think there was anything inevitable about it. And um, it's worth bearing in mind that compared to some other states in uh, Europe, uh, France has more stability. That might sound surprising, but there's no equivalent to the Carlist Wars in Spain, for example, where changes of government are followed by large-scale um, civil violence, civil warfare. Same process, of course, is seen in Portugal. Um, so, you know, there are different ways of looking at it, but I, I think contingency is the key element. What is interesting is that that contingency doesn't trigger civil war. So there's no recurrence of the really significant breakdown of civil order in France in 1793-94. What explains the relative long-term stability of the Third Republic? Well, I'm glad you put it like that because, and I think you're right to put it like that, because all too many people look at the frequent changes of government ministry and see that as a sign of instability. In fact, in many senses, it's rotating often the same small group of men in different offices, etc., etc. So I'm glad you see that as that. Um, what I would say helps the Third Republic is it doesn't engage in wars it's going to lose. I think that's very important. It, it, had it fought Britain in 1898 at Fashoda, it could have lost, for example. 
Um, it's benefiting from economic growth and with that a greater fiscal yield and in a sense a greater spoils system which creates lots of opportunities for both inherited elites and for new and rising elites. And I think that's very important. There's enough room linked to that in the French political sphere, both, however irritated they may be, both for, as it were, old-fashioned legitimists concentrating on the role of the position of the church, traditional views of the army, uh, nostalgic for the monarchy or empire, particularly in the 1870s and 80s, and yet also room for those who are more radical, republican, and in fact anti-clerical. Um, so there is contention. I, I would argue the major cause of contention is the position of the church, um, and France has its culture like uh, like Germany has, um, but on the other, or Italy for that matter, um, but I would argue that the French are, are able to finesse that successfully. Why was the Dreyfus affair so important? It's not as if the army was going to use the affair to launch a coup d'etat, correct? Uh, correct. I mean, the Dreyfus affair... Um, provided an opportunity different from that of anti-clericalism, church schools in particular, to rehearse in public a lot of political wrangles, but actually to an extent it is far less consequential than, than let us say, the scandal of General Boulanger in the previous generation, you know, whether he was going to stage a coup or not. So, yes, I would agree with you on that. It's an issue that resonates wider. Think of the month great monkey trial in America, for example, over evolution, uh, rather than necessarily having the enormous consequence. Another good example for American listeners would be the McCarthy trial hearings in Hollywood. You know, those are given an enormous amount of resonance, but actually in terms of key moments or key developments in American history after 1945, no, overplayed. So in essence, it's a cultural more than a political event. Oh, yeah. I mean, it has political manifestations, and obviously it provides a way for uh, people to advance or contest their own points of view in their own careers, uh, not least in the military. But um, I would not see it as something about that was fundamental to the governance of France. How would you rate French military performance in the Great War? Well, I think that's a very interesting question. I mean, French military performance in World War I um, is very strong on the defensive. Ultimately, the French uh, break the um, German offensives of 1914 at the Battle of the Marne, 1916 at Verdun. Um, the French find it harder, like the British, and like one might mention the Germans, um, to translate defensive uh, fortitude, success, tactical and operational skill into an effective um, offensive um, strategy, operational and tactical means. And I think you're absolutely right on that. Um, I would say that the French have a better first half of the war. In 1917, as you know, with the Nivelle Offensive, there is a degree of war weariness, uh, both within sections of the military, but also in sections politically. There's growing interest in the possibility of negotiations. There is growing uh, war weariness. Uh, and I think it's quite significant that that requires a change of tempo, politically and militarily, new leaders, uh, or newly dominant leaders, Clemenceau politically, Pantin militarily, uh, a strong commitment from allies, 
and that means that the, the French are able to play a key role in the eventual victory in 1918. And of course, you can contrast that in 1940. The ship was less good, um, and I think it's fair to say, without offending uh, your listeners in the United States, the fact that America was the great appeasing power in 1940 uh, helped to weaken both the French and the British against Germany. So as one of our leading military historians, how would you answer the paradox that even though things looked darkest in March to May 1918, there was no collapse in French morale, either in the army or in the home front? Well, I think that's a very interesting question, Charles. I mean, number of things to say that. First of all, the German spring offensives, which is the collective term, as you know, for the, for the offensives of that period, did deliver significant blows, but they did not succeed in breaking the French front. Um, so the Germans weren't able to move into, as it were, an operational advantage as they were in 1940. Second of all, there is French resilience. I think it is helped by allies, as I've already mentioned, both the British fighting very strongly, and, with, and by British were including Canadians, Australians, et al., and also the already strong commitment and arrival of American troops. All of those are important. Also, as we know, um, the general argument now is the astonishing um, uh, operational and strategic incompetence of the Germans in 1918 tactically good, operationally, constantly shifting the axis of attack, etc., etc. But you put your finger on it. Um, ultimately, morale is a key element. And what is interesting, if you're looking at 1918, and indeed I'd say the late 1917 as well, is that some powers that take major blows, and the other example apart from France is Italy, uh, after the Caporetto Offensive, nevertheless able to rally. Whereas other states are not, and obvious, the obvious examples are Russia in 1917 and Germany and Austria, uh, Bulgaria and the Turks in 1918. And I mean, there's a number of factors for that. I think the degree to which uh, the French had a similar position to the British, you know, the sort of the backs of to the wall philosophy, they had and they were pushed back on the defensive, which brought out the great strength of the French. French also had, like the British, um, uh, and in contradiction to what we might think of the war, uh, they had invested more heavily than the Germans in um, effective weapon systems, both the British and the French, more than the Germans in tanks, for example, in aircraft and in artillery. And the combination of that kit plus fighting grit, I think, is really important. But also, I mean, as you know, in 1917, there'd been a kind of clear out of those politicians who were most, um, um, defeatist might be the wrong word, but certainly most interested in the notion of, uh, of, of a negotiated settlement. Why did the Third Republic collapse in 1940? Was it solely a matter of military defeat, or was there a structural aspect to that event? Well, that's interesting following on from 1918, because obviously we're talking about both. I mean, both there was a fundamental military 
uh, defeat by the Germans, um, as there was in 1914 for the British forces in uh, in Europe and indeed for the, you know, the Belgians and the Dutch. So let's be clear about this. It's not just the French. Um, but the um, there's been a fundamental defeat. But what that defeat also does is lights the litmus paper, um, torch paper, I should say, um, in order to... Um, if you want to put it like this, to, to exacerbate the tensions within French politics. And I think it's fair to say that France isn't unique to that. I mean, as you know, there were divisions in Britain about negotiation with Germany. Um, there is no equivalent in either France or Germany to the situation in the Soviet Union where anybody that has an inconvenient view can be and is shot. Well, actually, they've generally been shot already. Um, so you have the classic problem of a democratic society which is under enormous pressure, and that pressure destroys, if you like, the cohesion of the national myth and therefore leads to differing personalities, political groupings, feeling that they should and must manoeuvre to defend their vision of France. And I think that that is what's brought out in 1940. And is that what occurred with the collapse of the Fourth Republic in 1958? Well, that's again a fascinating question. In the collapse of the Fourth Republic, we haven't got the same, obviously, foreign failure. I mean, there's been defeat in Indochine in uh, 1954. Uh, Algeria is not going exactly brilliantly, though the French are still in control of, of most of it. Um, I think that the... Um, I think we're going back to the situation we've seen before, which we've mentioned in France, that it is hard once you have a weak system. And remember, for French people in the late 1950s, the Fourth Republic's only been going for less than two decades. It's very hard in that, in that context to build up loyal patterns of um, agreement. But in part, I mean, De Gaulle, although he isn't a Napoleon in the sense that um, uh, he, but nevertheless, he has the tendency of wishing to be a strong man to solve problems, rather like Pétain in 1940, though obviously somewhat differently. Um, and again, there is a demand for a strong man, and there, and that, you know, not by everybody by any means, uh, but that is important in the particular circumstances of an exhaustion and division among many of the politicians. At 63 years, what does one make of the Fifth Republic? It's been helped enormously by its circumstances. The enormous economic growth in the, uh, you know, the 30 glorious years, as the French put it, um, the fact that um, its fiscal system has been propped up by the Germans as part of in the, being in the euro, um, that France has generally been able, by a matter of self-image and also uh, the organizations it's part of and the roles it's played with them to, to use a British phrase, punch above its weight. Uh, does it have serious internal divisions? Of course it does. Uh, are these going to doom it? No, because it's very difficult to see uh, an alternative. Um, I think people have to get used to the idea that the notion that they are always going to be happy with whoever's running France, so in other words, outsiders generally like the idea of a middle-of-the-roader um, emerging as president. That may not always be the case over the next 20 years. But the mixture of a kind of corporatist state 
presided over by nationalists uh, with a very strong sense of national self-interest, um, I think that that's likely to go on, although there are serious problems. There's no two ways about it. The um, concern about the integration of uh, large-scale Islamic population, that's a very serious problem. Uh, the support for the agricultural sector and competition in the global market, that's a serious problem. Uh, so there are serious problems within France. Um, but on the other hand, I think most Italians or Spaniards would be only too happy to have the political problems of France. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? Oh, I think my book, like those histories I've done of these other countries, Italy, Spain, and uh, Portugal, and indeed Britain, is an attempt to do what I think is really important, which is crossover history. In other words, it's an attempt to use the kind of methods that you and I have as scholars in which we look at evidence cautiously, we avoid uh, easy pat conclusions, we understand contingencies, but it's an attempt to do those and understand those and offer it to a wider audience in accessible language. I think that's crucially important, and alas, too many academic scholars are unwilling to do that, whereas too many popular scholars are unwilling to understand the complex nature of evidence. On that observation, which I would like to agree with entirely, I would like to thank you very much, for Professor Black, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Black. Thank you very much.